0: Kind of the soul. The soul. hello prestige heads as you can tell from my excited uh i don't know voice tenor register uh, I am feeling much better uh, from COVID. Uh, happy to be back on back on the horse of life and just working as much as humanly possible. Uh, and as you probably know, my name is Andy Bessner, and I'm here as always with my friend and co-host
1: Derek. Derek, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay. I'm uh, you know I I, I I'm gonna uh, let everybody know how old I am. I threw my back out a little bit the other day, but I'm I'm doing better. I'm on the mend.
0: Yeah, Derek's a young 68, so uh, we're, <laughs> yeah, all exactly. we're all happy. We're all praying for your recovery, Derek, hearts and yeah. prayers, thoughts and prayers, <laughs> not hearts and prayers, hearts, <laughs> thoughts and prayers to you and yours. Um, so why don't we just get into it today? Because speaking of COVID, it seems we've got a new variant, the Omicron variant. So wh- where does it seem to have come from? And it seems to me from my understanding of the situation that there were some questions about where it first arose and who reported it first, uh, et cetera. So why don't you break that down for us?
1: Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's no question that it was first identified, reported in South Africa. Um, there's no question that it's it's been in South Africa, uh, it seems, for a little while and, and is driving... Uh, a resurgence of COVID in South Africa. Um, there are questions about whether it originated in South Africa. There's some evidence uh, that it may have originated in West Africa, in Nigeria, perhaps, or somewhere uh, in that neighborhood. There's evidence. Uh, you know, it's now spread, of course, all over the uh, the world. There have been uh, identified cases of this this variant uh, on every continent. Uh, there's some evidence. Uh, particularly from europe that it was there uh before it had been identified before it had been isolated and uh, identified as a new variant now whether that says anything about its origins i think uh probably not i think probably uh, you know the preponderance of evidence you would have to say it's a, a, of southern african origin although uh, as you say there's still a little bit of uncertainty about that
0: so what can we expect from the Omicron? I, I personally, I'd be surprised if there was any sort of lockdown again that seems to uh, not be on the table. But have there been any global responses? Have we seen anything? i would noticed there's been some travel restrictions. How? What has defined um, the general response to Omicron?
1: Yeah, there's still a lot of uncertainty about exactly what is going on with it scientifically the the variant it got a lot of attention because it seems to be fairly heavily mutated away from the initial strain of the, the the covid the coronavirus even more so than the you know dreaded delta strain it, it seems to have deviated from from the original but there's not a lot of evidence yet about what that means there's some indication that it may be more transmissible of uh, south african authorities are saying they're seeing a lot of repeat infections, so it may be that if you've already had COVID, your natural immunity to a previous strain may not work so well uh, with this one. In terms of severity, it, uh, as far as I can, as far as I know, there doesn't seem to be any sense that it's any more or less severe than any of the other strains. And in fact, you know, people are wondering if it's, you know, vaccine-resistant or or that sort of thing. Uh, People who are vaccinated seem, in particular, seem to be uh, getting relatively mild uh, cases or infections. In terms of the international response, the, the main thing was, as you said, a travel ban on South Africa and some neighboring countries, similar bans. You know, the United States imposed... Such a ban. Uh, There have been European countries that have imposed similar bans. Obviously, they had no effect on (laughs) preventing the spread of the disease, which has reached everywhere, including the United States, which now has not only identified cases related to people traveling to Africa, but has identified at least one case, as far as I know, that doesn't seem to be related to any travel to Africa. So, domestic uh, transmission. So, you know, it didn't have any effect on that. The World Health Organization has said. Uh, that the travel bans are making it harder for people to share information for scientists uh, to share information and study this new variant. So at least it's had you know some some positive effect. I guess no, not really. But that's that's been the main thing. I, I think you're right. I think um, you may see we may see some lockdowns in. Some countries, it's going to be a, a a very hit or miss thing. I think the moment for lockdowns in in the United States uh, and in most of Europe has passed. I don't think you're going to get people to abide by, uh, even if you tried, and I don't think politicians are going to be willing to try. Uh, so, yeah, but I, I doubt, will I, think. I, I do
0: think you'll see. <laughs> the professional managerial class do everything that it can to not go into offices. So I think this, the, this sort of re constant identification of variants will change work for the white collar workers. Um, that's my prediction. Um, and not much for anything else, but uh, I could yeah. be wrong there. I
1: mean, it's, it's driving a lot of talk. You know, sort of renewing talk of people getting boosters. Yeah, you're gonna. I mean, this is, we're at the stage now where this is going to be here forever. Uh, you know, people who want to get vaccinated will have to do it every year for like the flu for whatever strain is sort of common that that year. I, I think it's somewhat ironic that we've we've gotten to this point partly uh, because of our inability to de- devise a an equitable global vaccine regime, which has left places like South Africa. And, and elsewhere, sort of scrambling to get enough vaccines for their own people. South Africa does have uh, a, a fairly substantial supply now. They're dealing with other uh, issues like reluctance and, and that that sort of thing. Um, but still, I mean, these these variants are developing in places. Delta was the same way. Are developing in places where you know because of of vaccine hoarding or because of the unwillingness to uh, you know drop intellectual property restrictions, you know, we're, we don't have enough vaccines or we haven't had enough vaccines to to take care of the populations.
0: Good to know. And we'll, we'll keep you, of course, updated with what happens with Omicron. But why don't we uh, turn to some more uh, traditional AP coverage, and that's the Honduran election. So, Derek, what, what happened?
1: Yeah. So, Honduras on Sunday elected themselves a new president, Xiomara Castro, a leftist after 12 years is now 12 years after the 2009 coup that ousted her husband, Manuel Zelaya, uh, that was basically supported or at least backed after the fact by the, the the Obama administration. She is the first woman to serve as president of Honduras and the first uh, left of center president that they've had since Zelaya was ousted in that coup. Um, she's replacing... Juan Orlando Hernandez, who uh, is perhaps most famous at this point, uh, for the fact that his brother uh, has been convicted of drug trafficking in the United States. And there's substantial evidence that emerged in that case that Juan Orlando was involved uh, in supporting the drug trade uh, from Honduras. Uh, despite that, he, he uh, uh, you know, had uh, a good relationship with the, the Trump administration. And I think the uh, the Biden administration was, uh, you know, more or less OK with him. Uh, he was term limited, so he couldn't run again. And his national party clearly suffered for the corruption and the scandals and that enabled to, to some degrees uh, castro to to emerge uh and win the, the election really like you know going away by 20 points over the the national party's candidate so does this indicate anything
0: in particular does has the united states um reacted to this in any meaningful way or are we still in a wait and see period
1: um i mean the the administration hasn't reacted as far as i know um castro Uh, if there is trouble uh, if she does have trouble with the u.s uh, the first sign of it may come uh, with respect to china she's uh, been very uh, straightforward uh, during the campaign about saying that uh, she plans to cut diplomatic ties with taiwan Uh, honduras is one of i think Fifteen at this point, if you include the Vatican, uh, states around the world that still recognizes Taiwan and not mainland China or not Beijing um, as you know the Chinese, the Chinese government. Uh, she's planning to to switch uh, over from Taipei to Beijing. Um, both, I think, for economic reasons and because. Uh, China can be a useful counterweight to the United States for the president of a country that has already experienced very recently uh, what happens when the United States, uh, you know, doesn't it doesn't appreciate your president doesn't appreciate the direction of your government. So um, that. That could be a bone of contention. Uh, Broadly speaking, I think her election is part of what I would say is maybe a little bit of a resurgence of the pink tide uh, in Latin America. Um, You know, we're seeing uh, in Chile, for example, uh, a a leftist, uh, Gabriel Boric, I think I'm pronouncing that right. I apologize if I'm not. uh, Looks like he's running ahead of the far right, his far right opponent, uh, Jose Antonio Cas uh in in uh, their their presidential runoff which will take place uh, on December 19th um in Brazil the obviously you know sort of trumpist far right Jair Bolsonaro is polling well behind Lula uh who is you know was sort of the the icon of the pink tide uh and is running again probably he hasn't announced it but probably will run again uh next year um so yeah i think there's a there's a little bit of a resurgence here of the left broadly speaking bolivia argentina and you know, a lot of these countries have uh, have sort of tilted back to the left after flirting with the right for uh, for a few years so that's that's an interesting kind of process to watch
0: and the dialectic continues <laughs> uh so let's let's turn to um ethiopia we recently did an episode on ethiopia when i was in sort of the dregs of covid so i unfortunately wasn't able to be on it but what's happened um in the last couple of weeks derek
1: Well, just in the last couple of days, actually, uh, last week, uh, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed announced that he was uh, heading to the front lines to take personal command of his troops as they're uh, dealing with the Tigray People's Liberation Front and its allies who were within a couple of days' march of Addis Ababa and really threatening the capital. Uh, Just a couple of days ago, actually, I think uh, Wednesday, Um, the government declared that it had made uh, a a major advance. It had retaken uh, a town called Lalibela, which is in uh, the northern part of the Amhara region. Um, Lalibela is home to one of Ethiopia's best known heritage features. There's a a number of very spectacular rock-hewn churches uh, in that area. And more importantly, from the standpoint of the conflict, uh, it's... It's well behind the front line that the TPLF had established a few weeks ago. And so there's the possibility... That the Ethiopian forces could be encircling the the Tigrayans and and kind of cutting them off from the Tigray region, which would be you know which would leave them in a pretty bad uh, situation. Abiy himself, the last report I saw was he was in the Afar region, which is another uh, the neighboring region where the Tigrayans have uh, the Tigrayan rebels have made some ca- some you know progress, made some advances, and there too there's a report that the Ethiopians have captured a a strategically important town in Afar. They've taken it back from the TPLF and, and that also, kind of working from both sides, they're working from the west and the east. Uh, they could be in a, in a position, if they continue this, to surround uh, the TPLF. From a, from a more positive, well, not, not more positive, but uh, in a non-military sense, the, the, the best development of the last several months, really, uh, was uh, uh, Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, announced Wednesday that a an aid convoy UN aid convoy had reached the capital of the tigray region Makela. um the, there's been difficulty in getting humanitarian assistance into tigray for weeks now um, so that's good. Uh, the estimates are that, you know, potentially millions of people uh, in Tigray are, are, are you know, in desperate need of food and medicine and other basic needs. Uh, there's supposedly another aid convoy on its way um, Two aid convoys are not going to be enough to sort of meet the needs of the, the people of Tigray. But um, maybe this is the start of a, an, an opening up of that region and, and more kind of regular shipments of aid. That would be a, a very good thing. So why don't we
0: end talking about Iran, especially given that, that that's what our interview is about this week. Uh, what What's happening there?
1: Yeah, so um, talks reopened finally on Monday uh, on the effort to revive the 2015 nuclear deal, which Donald Trump, of course, famously tore up in 2018 or withdrew from and, and basically uh, demolished. The Iranians had been kind of keeping the U.S. at arm's length for a few weeks uh, since the election earlier this year of Ibrahim Raisi and his, uh, I think, more conservative, if it's safe to say, government uh, less interested in engagement with the United States or the West. Um, but they finally uh, agreed to, to come back to the negotiating table, and that started again in Vienna on on Monday. Um, They agreed also to abide by the progress that had been made in uh, there were six previous rounds of these talks, which um, didn't get to a resolution, but did make some progress. They'd agreed to, uh, generally speaking, abide by the progress that that had been made, which is a good sign. Uh, Unfortunately, since then, (laughs) the last few days, uh, there doesn't seem to have been much progress made in Vienna and uh, both both uh, the the chief diplomats of the United States and Iran, uh, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, uh, and the Iranian Foreign Minister Hossein Amir Abdullahian, both on Thursday uh, sounded some pessimistic notes about the possibility uh, of actually reaching a successful conclusion here. It's unclear whether they're just posturing or uh, whether they're setting themselves up to to sort of uh, blame the other side if things really do collapse. But it it seems that the big issue right now is the Iranians are demanding sort of full sanctions relief from the United States. And the Biden administration (laughs) has been sort of trying to parse this uh, and being too cute about it for several months now. They're still trying to do that. They're arguing that the nuclear deal only required the United States to lift sanctions that were directly related to Iran's nuclear program. And so, you know, if there were sanctions for things like human rights violations or or other sorts of things that that those don't count, that the United States should be able to leave those in place, it's hard to kind of separate what is a nuclear-related sanction from what isn't a nuclear-related sanction, especially because the Trump administration muddied the waters quite a bit uh, on that front, so uh, the Iranian demand is is fairly reasonable, I think, but it's probably too much uh, for the Biden administration, which won't want to take the political heat for for fully lifting all U.S. sanctions on Iran.
0: So, what do you think will happen going forward? If you had to make a prediction, it doesn't seem great.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the com- the obvious compromise to me would be Biden administration say to the Iranians, "Look, we'll, we we'll lift every sanction." Uh, That was in place in 2015 that was lifted when the the nuclear deal was reached Uh, and then we will lift any all the sanctions that the Trump administration, all the new sanctions uh, that the Trump administration imposed, um, which won't probably won't cover every sanction the United States has ever put on Iran, but would get back to. What the status quo was at, at at the point at which the nuclear deal was was reached, and will undo what the Trump administration did. The big problem with that, I think, from a political perspective, is one of the the most serious things that that the Trump administration did was it d- designated the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Iran's uh, one of Iran one. F- part of Iran's military, the part that does the most kind of international work, designated them as a terrorist organization. And I think it's going to be very politically damaging uh, for for Biden to undo that particular designation. But but in order to achieve any relief from U.S. sanctions, the, the IRGC is so such a big player in iran now uh, particularly economically uh that if it remains on that list then then the iranians can't really reap any of the benefits or many of the benefits of sanctions relief so uh, you know the biden administration either has you know, it has to decide if it's willing to eat the political cost uh, yeah of i taking think taken that step unlikely <laughs> or, you know, and i i think it's unlikely too um which which makes me pessimistic about the the outcome here but uh, we'll see so on that happy note <laughs> i feel like i've been saying that a
0: lot recently uh <laughs> let's turn toward our interview and everyone thank you very much and we'll see
1: you next week <laughs> Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek. I'm here with, as always, Danny Bessner, who I believe is uh, on the road to recovery from his. Uh, I am. COVID. I am on
0: the road to recovery. Yes, I. I <laughs> Say, am indeed. Good news. I am a. Good I news. have uh, pushed through, and I have survived COVID, and I feel better. Apparently, lethargy and coughing will last for a month or two, perhaps a bit longer. But my sense of taste and smell is back, and you know everything's just really looking up. It was the ivermectin that did it, I'm sure.
1: Uh,
0: Oh, yeah. I cleaned out basically every animal supply store in the greater Los Angeles area.
1: (laughs) As one does. Uh, Well, of course, you got to, you know, you got to do what you got to do. so Danny's here and and he's on the mend. And we're very lucky to be joined uh, as this week uh, talks have resumed in Vienna on reviving the 2015 Iran nuclear deal or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. We're very lucky to be joined by Sina Tusi, uh, who's a senior research analyst uh, at the National Iranian American Council. Uh, Sina has been covering the the nuclear situation for a while now. Uh, He comes. Covers it from both the the, the American and Iranian sides, uh, so he's got an excellent perspective on where things stand. Cena, thank you very much for for coming on the program.
0: And our second um, NIAc guest, I
2: believe. That's true. Right? Yes, yeah. we
1: had uh, Asal oh. Rod on a few weeks ago. So, yes,
2: awesome, great. Well thanks for having us it's great to be on
1: <laughs> thanks for joining us man so cena i thought um this is how we tend to approach most things on the show uh i thought we'd go back to the the let's start in the beginning. year 400 yeah, let's let's start with <laughs> so the
0: Akamated dynasty the first, dynasty.
1: <laughs> the first uh, adam uh, The the greeks brought this up right the greeks were were the first to theorize now um we're going to take Take us back to the origins of Iran's nuclear program in the heady days of the Cold War in the 1950s uh, under what was called the Atoms for Peace program, which is a very interesting Eisenhower administration initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about that and specifically uh, about Iran's
2: involvement in that program? Yes. Yeah, so Iran at the time you know, was a critical U.S. ally. The Shah really owed his entire of uh, his monarchy to the to the United States, just actually this Adams for Peace agreement that the, sh- the U.S. reached with the Shah in 1957. and happened just four years after the 1953 U.S. UK coup d'état that you know overthrew the popularly elected Prime Minister Mohammad al- Mossadegh, brought the Shah back. So at the time when when the U.S. was making these moves to nuclearize the Shah at the peak of the Cold War, this was really a Shah that was at his, you know, the, you know, very insular, several years after the coup had just clamped down, very, you know, extremely dependent on U.S. support. So, you know, this atmosphere at the time, and the Shah, you know, wanted increased support from the U.S. And he always, you know, his, what he always feared, you know, throughout his reign was, you know, a lack of legitimacy. You know, the coup had this dark shadow throughout the rest of his reign, and he sought to fill this lack of domestic the, it's the lack of domestic legitimacy that he had with U.S. support, U.S. armament, and you know U.S. Uh, nuclear support for its nuclear program.
0: And also the Shah. Correct me if I'm wrong, Sina, but the Shah was uh, also a relatively young guy, so he's looking forward to theoretically decades of rule, and also uh, his family had come to power uh, as a result of a coup as well. So there's a general fear of political stability um, in the moment of the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s. Is that correct? Iran has experienced like two pretty significant coups in a generation.
2: Absolutely. Yes. I mean, it's a volatile situation, but interestingly, this did not stop the U.S. from you know, exporting nuclear know-how and technology to the shop. And as part of this Atoms for Peace program to give nuclear technology to Iran, uh, the U.S. actually gave Iran its first reactor, its first nuclear reactor, which is now known as the Tehran Research Reactor. But when the U.S., the designs that the U.S. gave to Iran and, and built for Iran this reactor, it actually ran on high enriched uranium, weapons-grade uranium. It's funny because right now in this debate about Iran's current nuclear program and you know, is Iran gonna to go to weapons grade? Is Iran not gonna to go to weapons grade? It's kind of ironic because I've heard actually people this week saying this, that there are no peaceful uses for weapons grade uranium. That if Iran were today to go to nine percent of uranium, there are no peaceful uses. But actually there are, you know, among many peaceful uses, the act this research reactor that America itself gave to Iran in 67 ran on HEU. And Iran actually later modified this reactor, which is still active. to run on lower grade uh, fuel, so that uranium enriched at twenty percent level. So,
1: weapons grade for, a, for anybody who is not aware, weapons grade uranium is enriched to ninety or more percent uh, to sustain the kind of reaction you need for a, for an explosion at, at a small enough amount to pack into a warhead.
2: Right. Exactly. And in the seventies. There was a spike in kind of the Shah's ambitions to become a regional power, to become like the U.S. vassal state in the region, the U.S. kind of partner that when when the British left the Persian Gulf in the late 60s, that the Shah was positioning himself to be that pillar for kind of Americans' global ambitions in the Persian Gulf, to be the, the buffer against the Soviet Union. And under the Nixon administration and later the Ford administration, you know, Iran's ties deepened even further with the United States. Nixon and the Shah were really, really close pals. And they reached this kind of uh, accord, a kind of relationship where the Shah, you know, who had this kind of unquenchable appetite for U.S. arms and could keep the U.S. arms industries afloat, like single handedly, you know, bought tons and tons of weapons, billions and billions of dollars for the weapons in turn, for kind of policing the Persian Gulf on the U.S. behalf. And we saw, you know, begin, you know, in the 70s, Iran actually, you know, sent forces. Like, if we talk about Iran's regional influence or interferences, you know, back then under the Shah, you know, Iran sent troops to Oman to put down communist rebels, you know, on behalf of the U.S. Iran intervened in Iraq and even in, in Syria and elsewhere in the region, you know, in line with U.S. interests, which now that, you know, are kind of at odds, even though, I mean, this is a separate discussion. We can talk about the continuity of kind of some certain policies between the Shah and the Islamic Republic, including the nuclear program, obviously. But obviously the U.S. is totally, you know, pivoted, 180 degrees difference, whereas all these things were okay under the Shah, under the Islamic Republic, you know, totally the opposite. You know, we have these threats of war, maximum pressure sanctions, all these things.
1: Yeah, I mean Iran was the the linchpin. I mean they were in the they were in the Central Treaty Organization, they were in the Safari Club, the the sort of uh, covert operations group that was formed in the late 70s. I mean they were hugely important to to US policy not just in the Middle East but in Africa and elsewhere. Um uh, I want to ask you getting back into the to the nuclear program specifically. Um Adams for Peace was partly intended, at least for public consumption, uh, as a way to limit nuclear proliferation. So, you know, the Eisenhower administration pitched this as sort of a program where if you have these countries that are interested in nuclear power, uh, but, you know, there's a danger that if they they just sort of pursue it themselves, they could produce weapons. We will go around and, and graciously uh, share our nuclear knowledge with them uh, for civilian purposes so that we can guide them uh, away from weapons production. It also obviously uh, had huge implications for U.S. businesses, but uh, they didn't want to talk about that part of it so much. Um, And it was
0: also as a just one more thing, Derek, as the historian Kenneth Osgood has shown, it was also a really crucial domestic propaganda program to sort of win the next generation of Americans over to the Cold War. There was a lot of money spent on there. There was a lot of effort um, made in order to persuade people that even though the United States was developing this uh, massive nuclear arsenal or planned to develop this massive nuclear arsenal, that it would be uh, used mostly for peace. And I also think it's interesting, obviously the Adams for Peace program um, was months in in the making, but it's, it's published really in late uh, 1953, uh, which is really a, a moment of strategic um, transformation in the Eisenhower administration where, where the um, administration effectively ends at the rollback strategy that had defined the previous uh roughly three-plus years of U.S. foreign policy, late Truman to early Eisenhower, uh, and begins shifting to this sort of like global hearts and minds approach. So it, it's when you see this gigantic explosion um, in American propaganda and psychological warfare, both domestically and internationally.
1: In the case of Iran, um, and this is you know, get, getting to my question, I mean, the Iranians signed the Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, ratified it, I believe, in 1970, uh but so so i mean they were participating in the non the kind of global non proliferation architecture as it existed in this period uh, uh that said uh, what do we really know about the shah's um nuclear <laughs> ambitions did he have some is there any evidence that he had some ambition to have a a, a
2: nuclear weapons program of his own he did. He had nuclear weapons ambitions. Uh, this is according to Akbat Etemad, who is the first head of the Atomic Energy Organization of Iran under the Shah. And, you know, later on in his life, he gave interviews to in, in Persian, to various outlets. And he said that the Shah never explicitly ordered him to, you know, pursue weaponization or kind of, you know, weaponize Iran's nuclear program, but that this was always his understanding. And that he was preparing the groundwork for a program that could weaponize. And Iran's program at that time, unlike now, you know, the Shah had all these grandiose ambitions for like many, many nuclear reactors, you know, the full nuclear fuel cycle. Um, but also, you know, things like having a plutonium reprocessing facility. Now, I think, you know, some of your listeners may know, but there's two paths to two main paths to a nuclear weapon through enriched uranium or plutonium and Iran at the time you know the mix the Ford administration actually approved Iran having a plutonium reprocessing facility which is actually one of the things that JCPOA has prohibited Iran from having and has always been a point of contention and under the Islamic Republic Iran does not have one of these facilities but under the Shah the US approved the Iran having this, which would have given it a route to plutonium, uh, plutonium route to the nuclear weapon. So, so the U.S. was kind of, you know, okay with Iran having this option at the time.
1: This takes us then, we get into the late 70s, the Shah, increasingly unpopular um is ousted in 1979 in the revolution um the revolutionaries seize the US embassy and and you know things go in a very bad direction after initially you know the Carter administration seems to have not really um figured out how it wanted to handle things once the the embassy was seized and the hostages were taken uh that sort of foreclosed uh, a lot of possibility for for diplomacy at least right away what happened uh in terms of the the iranian nuclear program and the international component of that the assistance that they were getting uh from the u.s and europe uh in the immediate
2: wake of the revolution yeah so it fell apart um you know iran actually had you know agreements with german companies agreements with european companies to to, to develop its nuclear program to receive nuclear fuel and this would actually play a critical role in iran later on developing, again, trying to enriching uranium and trying to provide fuel for its nuclear program itself, that Iran actually, you know, going back to the Shah's era, had a stake in a European kind of uh, nuclear fuel consortium and actually owned a part of it. And, you know, all these agreements, you know, transferred on to the, to the new government. But then, uh, you know, after the revolution, the Germans pulled out, this this kind of European fuel consortium pulled out. And so Iran, you know, was had was not able to kind of continue to really develop the nuclear program as it was after the revolution. And then after the revolution, we had, you know, this period of turmoil and chaos, this new government consolidating power, this new leadership consolidating power. And then the Iran-Iraq war broke out. And, you know, this was a brutal eight year long war, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were killed on both sides. You know, it was marked by, you know, attacks on cities, you know, like the Iraqis would bomb Iranian cities. And, The Iraq, Iraq also used chemical weapons against Iran during this period. And, and this goes back, you know, this is an important part of understanding kind of the questions surrounding Iran's nuclear program, because in the Islamic Republic's official kind of national security doctrine, going back to this war, you know, they have at least publicly. But, you know, in practice as well during that conflict, you know, had this policy of not using weapons of mass destruction. So whereas Iraq at the time was developing weapons of mass destruction with U.S. and Western support, there's lots of lots of documented evidence of even American companies, you know, giving Saddam Hussein all the precursor ingredients he needed to produce nuclear weapons. The U.S. knew that these weapons were being used, but Iran did not retaliate in kind. Even though it had the means of developing these weapons as well, at the time, you know, Iran's leadership forbid these weapons, much like Iran's leadership now for what it's worth, which I wouldn't that's you know, you can't place like a legal work hunt on any of this stuff, but, you know, they say that, you know, according, you know, they have issued religious fatwas or decrees against these weapons of mass destruction. But I think this period of the Iran Iraq War is very formative for the leadership of this Islamic Republic after the revolution, for how they view the world, how they view their security challenges, and especially the the kind of uh, threat of Iraq and Saddam Hussein, and I think we can get into this later. But I think you know a lot of the, prolific- the Iran- development of Iran's nuclear program in the '90s was more geared towards Saddam Hussein.
0: So let's actually focus on that for a second. So what is the geostrategic conception or the grand strategic idea that begins to um, define Iranian politics after the revolution? W- what do the does the new ruling elite think that they're doing in the world? Um, what do they think that their major goal is? Um, how does it relate to Islam? You know, it's one of the world's only Islamic republics. And then how does this relate to what happens with um, Iraq?
2: Yes. Great question. I think... Iran, you know, analogous to China and analogous to so many con- you know, the entire global South, you know, coming from this historical context of, you know, being a proud ancient civilization that in the past 100, 200 years came under Western colonialization, under Western dominance and under humiliation. Much like China had its two, two centuries of humiliation, Iran, you know, heir to this great civilization and historically being a major power you know in the 1800s there was beginning in the 1800s massive encroachment on iranian territory and inside iran by you know western and kind of european great powers including the uk russia and then later on of course the united states replaced them and iran lost a lot of territory um you know really fell behind and so this was, a. This was, you know, I think one of the main... Oh, one, defining, one more thing, yeah.
0: correct me if I'm wrong, but also yeah. just like, quote-unquote, Persian culture is so important, you know? So there's this enormous cultural element here as well, like in, in the Gramscian hegemonic sense. Like if you look at Pakistan or if you look at elsewhere throughout the so-called Muslim world, that there is this like um, cultural prestige that Iran had as well. So it's both the geopolitical and the cultural that they're seeking to restore at this moment, correct?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, Persian culture and Persian kind of, you know, administration, you know, in this region, going back many, vocabulary, many hundreds of years, vocabulary, vo- Persian
0: vocabularies all over um, yes,
2: yeah. the world. So it's it's a huge, I mean, to the extent that, you know, they're trying to restore that. I mean, I think that's debatable because there are all these kind of, you know these very alarmist takes on Iranian foreign policy today that Iran is trying to restore the Persian empire and all of this stuff. I would push back against a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. For for sure. I'm just talking
0: about like, there's this cultural. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in central
2: Asia. Even I mean, not just in like, you know, in the middle East and Persian Gulf and it's some of Iran's Arab neighbors, but especially in in central Asia and kind of places like Afghanistan, Tajikistan, and even in Pakistan and India, lots of Persian influence, Persian kind of, vocabulary in those
1: languages so uh, let's talk a little bit about what happens to the nuclear program during and then after the iran iraq war there are a couple of reactors civilian reactor projects at Bushehr that are uh, kind of abandoned uh, in the wake of the revolution that then are heavily damaged during the war uh, by iraqi airstrikes uh, th- iran has lost its suppliers for uh, both for the, the highly enriched uranium that they needed for the, the research reactor, but also for, um, uh, you know, lower enriched uranium to fuel these, uh, civilian power plants. But the Iranians, uh, seem to be very interested, uh, in kind of rebuilding this program in, in the, in the wake of the war and, and start talking to, uh, France. They start talking, I believe, to Argentina. Uh, t- talk about the, the sort of resumption Uh, of interest in in nuclear power
2: after the war ended or as the war was wrapping up yeah so iran you know iran is an oil exporting country obviously rich in oil and natural gas resources um at the same time its domestic consumption of oil and kind of fossil fuels has dramatically increased in the past several decades so from the iranian side and i think you know some of the stuff uh, I, I I push back again. Some of the stuff has, has real economic merit. That you know they would to diversify their kind of energy production, beginning in the '90s again, but with the same logic that also pertained to the, the many of the aspirations that the Shah had. To you know, nuclear fuel would be a substitute for domestic consumption of kind of you know oil and natural gas, which would also allow more oil to be exported as opposed to Iran just using it. You know increasing amounts of its oil for domestic per- production and also you know over time allow Iran to kind of not be dependent on, on oil either as its own oil resources to deplete it. So anyway, that's just that's one justification for Iran's nuclear program that officials there have given that and beginning in the 90s, yeah. So the Boucher power plant, again, they they got to the, reach agreements with Russia to come and complete that, which is a nuclear power plant in the southern Iranian city of Boucher on the Persian Gulf. Um, So the Tehran Research Reactor, that that reactor I was talking about earlier, that in the late 60s America gave to Iran, which ran on high-enriched uranium, that this was modified to to run on low-enriched uranium, 20% enriched uranium, which can't be used to produce uh, nuclear weapons. And Iran, for a long time, was searching for someone to sell it fuel to operate this reactor. And this reactor produces... Uh, medical isotopes that are used to create a, lot, a host of medications, especially you know chemotherapy, other diseases that that require this. And so, Argentina actually ended up being a fuel supplier for Iran. That you know they provided that fuel for that reactor for several decades. Um, but then, yeah. So this takes us you know into the '90s, into the kind of you know the growing suspicions and concerns of many in the West that Iran you know had, was expanding its nuclear program, and this it didn't you know, blow up until 2002. We can get. So
0: Cena. Why doesn't Iran want to be part of George H. W. Bush's New World Order? What's what's their problem? <laughs> uh, who wouldn't want to join such a wonderful constellation of political actors? Or uh, a bit more seriously, uh, what is how, how does Iran view the world um, with the end of the Cold War between eighty nine and ninety one? Because I imagine this presents a lot of problems, um, particularly in the region where there is going to be a bunch of new independent states all of a sudden, and so the regional constellation is going to totally change. And and in particular, what was iran's relationship to the soviet union in the last decade of the soviet union's existence Were that was there any serious exchange or was it you know was gorbachev kind of reducing those commitments
2: yeah i mean this was a critical juncture for iran actually so you know the islamic republic coming out of this you know the result of this revolution of popular anger against you know two centuries of foreign domination and colonialization that you know In its foreign policy orientation, the slogan of the revolution was neither East nor West. So neither with the Soviet bloc or with the Western bloc. So they try to kind of strike their own kind of middle way. But we did whatever
0: we could to push them into the Soviet bloc.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, but that's the interesting thing because, you know, during the Iran-Iraq war, that Saddam Hussein was also had good relations with the Soviet union was very close to them at one point. So he also got a lot of support from, from the Soviet union during that war, but Iran as well, you know, was trying to get arms and support from whoever it could and as well as the Soviet union, as well as from America during the Iran Contra scandal. And so this is actually a critical point because there's, has been elements within Iran's governments from, you know, early years after the revolution till now, that do see an interest in kind of trying to improve relations with the United States and kind of, you know, in terms of Iran balancing its foreign relation and having foreign relations and having a good relationship with the United, a a functional relationship alongside with like the Soviet Union or later Russia, China and other powers. And the kind of more moderate or pragmatic camp, as as many people describe them in Iran, people like the former uh, President Hashemi Rafsanjani, And so he was president, when you know, When the Cold War ended and the fall of the Soviet Union. And at that time, there was actually very major efforts by Raf Sanjani to kind of foster detente with the US. And, you know, George H.W. Bush initially seemed receptive. You know, in his inauguration speech, he talked about goodwill begets goodwill. And at the time, they were trying to get the Iranians to help to free American hostages in Lebanon. And so Iran, Rafsanjani and them played a constructive role in, in helping get those hostages freed. And as part of this deal, the, Iran expected the U.S. to kind of free up some of its assets and kind of give it some kind of uh, some sanctions relief and kind of some of some of the debts that were owed to Iran. And that never materialized. And and then we saw the U.S. You know, no real momentum towards any kind of, you know, diplomacy or outreach towards Iran. And then under the Clinton administration, you know, Rafsanjani again tried, you know, he actually gave uh, the U.S. oil company, Panoco, a contract in Iran to develop Iranian oil fields. It's huge, you know, like, you know, post-revolution the first time. And Bill Clinton, they prevented that from happening. And they switched to this kind of dual containment approach in the Persian Gulf after the Cold War, where, Previously, in the 80s, you know, people have said that America, you know, wasn't directly intervening. It was kind of a, somewhat of an offshore balance where, you know, they didn't want either Iran or Iraq to win that war. And they, they kind of supported a little bit of each side, you know, mostly Iraq. But then after and just for the war, people who
0: might not know what that means, offshore balancing refers to the idea that the United States will use its power offshore in order to maintain a relatively stable balance of power because stability is in the U.S. interest.
2: Yeah, and... So Bill Clinton, the dual containment policy that he enacted was aimed at the U.S. is going to, you know, after the the Persian Gulf war against Saddam Hussein, that, you know, they're housing, you know, tens of thousands of troops in the region now, base new military bases, and is going to directly contain both Iran and Iraq, both the two powers of the uh, Persian Gulf. And so I think this is testament to the kind of, you know, this moment of Pax Americana, this moment of hubris that, you know, history is over, America's the global hegemon. And Whereas, you know, maybe in this late in this late 1980s scenario, you know, people in the U.S., the national security state thought, you know, detente with the Iran was in their interests, that they could, you know, more constructive relationship would be helpful for them vis-a-vis the Soviet Union and the different kind of global strategic landscape. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union, this change, and we saw this effort to, contain Iran and you know ultimately regime change Iran and you know we know and that eventually morphed into, you know, the war against Iraq and all, a lot of the things we've seen against Iran.
0: So Sina, before we get into the geopolitics of Iran, I was wondering if you could comment if you know and if not, we could just skip this. Like we obviously are well aware that Iraq um, occupies a central place in the imagination of the neocons who would come to dominate the Bush administration. You know, Wolfowitz has been talking about Iraq a, a for, for quite a while. Um, is this true for Iran or what place does Iran have in the um, imaginations of these people who would really come to occupy very important foreign policy positions in the Bush administration?
2: Yeah. Iran is actually the main target for, for the, for the neoconservatives. It was, I mean, for the, for the neoconservative movement in the Bush administration, they had this, these aspirations to transform the Middle East. And for them, it began with Iraq, but for, you know, the main enemy and the main kind of obstacle to kind of, you know, uncompromising American hegemony, in the region was Iran. And there was a quote, I think it was from Paul Wolfowitz, or I may be mistaken, but there is a quote from in the, within the Bush administration that someone said, like, you know, like real men go to Tehran. Like yeah, we're going. You know, we're gonna we're going to attack Iraq right now. But real man, you know, go to Tehran. Like they're next. And so, you know, it is in this moment, It's around this moment actually, where within a context where actually after Rafsanjani, Iran elected a a, a reformist president, a, a more reformist president than than Rafsanjani, uh, Mohammad Khatami, and Khatami again tried. You know, his whole presidency was really centered on outreach to the West, trying to improve relations. What the years? West.
0: Just to be clear, so he was his... elected in
2: 1997 and his term, he was elected, he was re-elected in 2001 and he ended his term in 2005.
0: And that's, time. he's replaced by Ahmadinejad. By Ahmadinejad,
2: the hardliner. And that's, yeah. again, that's one tragedy of U.S.-Iran relations in the past several decades where you know, you've had these efforts where you might have a leader on one side, usually it's on the Iranian side that is expending a lot of political capital there, trying to improve the relationship. And you know, it's met by a hardliner here, kind of a very kind of hawkish uh, presidency here, and then, you know, that results in Iran also that, you know, shifting, and you know, kind of a hardliner there, becoming empowered, which is what we've seen from Rouhani to uh, Reisi now as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, Hatami. I mean, you can, you can make the case that the U.S. laid the groundwork for Ahmadinejad to be elected in two, 2005 by not kind of responding uh, to what Khatami was doing as a, as a reformer who was interested in diplomacy. Right. Um, right. To, to steer us back a little bit toward the nuclear program, um, can you talk specifically about how this policy of dual containment in the 90s and as we get, you know, up to um, the, the big break in 2002, 2003, where things really uh, take a turn for the worse, um, how did this... Policy of dual containment manifest in terms of Iran's nuclear programs. I know the United States leaned on pretty much every country that was, you know, working with or thinking about working with Iran. They leaned on Argentina. They leaned on France. I think they leaned on Russia to some extent. They leaned on China. Uh, to sort of, you know, pull back their their involvement or, or not work with the Iranians. And I think to some extent, you know, uh, some of the the issues with their nuclear program now, with the Iranian nuclear program now, you can trace to a sense of kind of mistrust over, you know, some
2: of the things that the United States did in this period. Exactly. So, you know, this actually goes to a debate about the NPT, I would say, because, you know, Iran is a signatory to the nuclear nonproliferation treaty. The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, Iran is one of the original signatories, actually, and similar, actually, to or somewhat similar to this Adams for Peace idea that the U.S. had in the 50s, where the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty is kind of a bargain between the nuclear weapon states and the non-nuclear weapon states, where the treaty itself says that the the non-nuclear weapon states commit to never building nuclear weapons, but the nuclear weapon states permit, you know, are obligated, actually, to give them the technology and means to benefit from nu- peaceful nuclear technology, and they are also obligated to disarm. So the U.S. has obviously violated its obligations with the NPT because it, it hasn't moved towards disarming, you know, during the past several decades. But Iran has always said, and, you know, this is the view of the vast majority of NPT signatories, that the Nuclear non-proliferation Treaty gives countries the rights to develop the nuclear fuel cycle for peaceful purposes. So Iran in the 90s, as you were just saying, was faced with this environment where it it was trying to rebuild Boucher, rebuild this nuclear power plant there. And it couldn't find any partners to to give it nuclear fuel to, to kind of help develop this program. So Iran began laying the groundwork for building this nuclear fuel cycle infrastructure. And this actually takes us to 2002, which 2002 is the year that and Iran, you know, had a relationship, you know, as according to its entity obligations, with the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, and it had safeguards agreements with them. But then in two thousand two, was when the Iran nuclear crisis really started.
0: Wait, Sina. Before we get there, yeah. what yeah. happens in September two thousand and one, and how does Iran <laughs> respond to that? So, like, set the stage. Great point. Yeah.
2: Great point. Great point. There's just so much to that, discuss that about all this, and it's also important. But yes, yeah, so. As we were talking about earlier with Khatami, so Khatami, you know, came to pre- came to Iran's presidency, trying to improve ties with the West, pushing back against all of these, you know, very hardline, dogmatic people inside Iran. And after the 9-11 attacks in the, against the U.S., Iran was actually, you know, very emphatically kind of um, condemned those attacks. You know, people in Tehran had rallies where they held candles, you know, in commemoration for the victims of that attack and after the u.s invasion of Afghanistan which you know the Taliban was actually a longtime enemy of Iran the Sunni fundamentalist group which you know at that time was was had attacked Iranian diplomats inside Afghanistan so in 1998 Iran and Afghanistan actually Iran and the Taliban almost went to war when the Taliban they seized Mazar-e-Sharif and they, they executed all these Iranian diplomats there and Iran moved all its troops there and there was nearly a war but anyways after 9-11 Iran played a huge role in helping the U.S. in kind of the invasion of Afghanistan and also setting up the kind of post-Taliban government so Iran had a lot of contact with the opposition to the Taliban at that time the Northern Alliance the various other ethnic minorities of the, the Hazara and Tajik and Uzbek and to so Iran in the 2002 Bond conference, according to U.S. officials, it played a really integral role in bringing all the parties together and allowing for this kind of stable government. Somewhat stable, you know, didn't proved to be stable. But at that time, it allowed, allowed that government to be formed. But then, you know, what happened then was, you know, in response to all this assistance that Iran provided, was the Bush administration, George W. Bush, in his 2003 State of the Union speech, put Iran in an axis of evil alongside Iran and North Korea.
0: So what's the explanation for that? Is that just David Frum is fulfilling some long-term neocon goal? Because the more I learn about this very specific micro period, it's a little strange that Iran was put in there. It
2: is. It is. And I think a lot of this goes back to the neoconservative influence on the Bush administration and also what Iran meant for them and by extension for Israel, because that's a huge part of this discussion, which from the 90s onward, you know, Israel really portrayed Iran as its, its biggest enemy, as trying to wipe it out, and made Iran into this scapegoat, while it was, you know, expanding settlements over the occupied Palestinian territories, you know, making a two-state solution impossible, but all, you know, creating this boogeyman in Iran, beginning in the 90s, constantly, you know, you've probably seen these headlines, you know, the Israelis, since like, 1992 have been saying every two months that Iran is like two months away from a bomb or something, but, you know, really hyping up the threat of, of Iran since that time because the Israelis had a strategic interest in kind of keeping the U.S. in the region, you know, containing Iran and also sca- blaming everything on Iran. It's kind of easily demonizable country and preventing rapprochements with the U.S. And, you know, uh, you know, the Israel lobby had a ton of influence, obviously, in the Bush administration, with the neoconservatives. And I think, I think that is a large part of why we saw access of you know Iran included in the access of people, and you know they had their their kind of uh, guns targeting Iran.
0: So I guess then we could return to two thousand and two. What's happen- What's happening here with the nuclear issue?
1: Right. What What is the IAEA report, and and on what basis do they do they make this report that to sort of creates the or? maybe not creates the crisis, but sends
2: it to a, to a much higher level. Yes. So actually with the safeguards agreement that the I- Iran had with the IAEA at the time. So basically what, what happened in 2002 was Iran's, what later became Iran's Natanz enrichment facility, a facility that was, you know, it's used to enrich uranium. At this time it was under construction. And so this was leaked to the world. It was actually this Iranian opposition group, the MEK, which is, has its, 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 it's basically, I mean, that's a separate discussion, but it's this very cult-like opposition group that's played a huge role in kind of U.S.-Iran policy. Maybe we can talk about that later. But they're the ones who were actually laundered intel about uh, Natanz by the Israelis, and they're the ones who originally leaked this. But then we saw the IAEA, you know, ask for access to these facilities, that these were undeclared facilities, and and ask for access, and that started the first kind of period of Iran's negotiations with the West over its nuclear program. And this was a period from 2002 to 2005 under the Khatami government. So the Khatami government, you know, they maintained that, you know, the program is peaceful, that it was in line with, they didn't have to declare these facilities until like 180 days, until fissile material was introduced. And according to the safeguards agreement that Iran had signed at that point, that was the case, but Iran was also in, in updating that safeguards agreement and negotiating over you know, these other safeguards that come in, that, that they would have had to declare those sooner. But but they started negotiations with Europe at the time. So the, the Bush administration kind of gave license to E3 they became known as. Germany, uh, the UK, and France that spearhead these negotiations over Iran's nuclear program. And Khatamin, Their position was that Iran, Iran's nuclear program is peaceful. Iran has a right to 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 develop its nuclear program and develop, you know, have uranium enrichment and develop uranium enrichment capability under the MPT. But as a goodwill gesture and to and to create good momentum for diplomacy, they actually suspended enrich, they suspended uh, enrichment and they froze their nuclear program. They froze their nuclear program from 2002 to 2005 to allow these negotiations to make progress. This is and, also
0: when Gaddafi does that, right? Is this is also the moment when Gaddafi freezes his program or no?
2: He, I in I the, yeah, that? around
0: this time, that's that's correct. Yeah, so this Kinda is like a big, this is a trend was post underway. 9-11. Right, and so I just want to highlight that because of the missed opportunities. Yeah, uh, and also, uh,
1: and- also uh, to to kind of put this back into the context of, of some of the things that happened in the '90s. You know, one of the arguments that the United States made was: there's no reason for Iran to have its own uranium enrichment program. You can just buy enriched uranium on the global market. Uh, you know, and they, they were you know cons- they they expressed you know kind of uh, the the idea that the these facilities were being kept secret, and that was you know that. Made them somehow nefarious, but the Iranian response to this was like, "Look at what you've been doing to us for the last decade. You haven't let anybody sell and enrich uranium to us, so we have no choice but to build our own capacity. Uh, we're keeping these things secret because of the way that the United States has been managing this issue uh, for all these years. So it's it's sort of like uh, disingenuous, I think. And you can you know disagree with me or, or not for the for the United States to have made these. Arguments having you know spent several years kind of stifling uh, the Iranian nuclear program to then turn around and say, well, you you can't develop your own capabilities now. That's
2: not fair, right? And meanwhile, the U.S. is out there claiming that you know Iraq Saddam Hussein, Iran's kind of longtime enemy who had invaded Iran and tried to take Iranian territory, had a nuclear weapons program, a weapons of mass destruction program. So I think, and you know, America later you know, American intelligence agencies have concluded, you know, time and again that, you know, Iran's nuclear weapons program was ended in 2003, but and in subsequent years, we have more details about what that quote-unquote weapons program looked like, and according to the IAEA, this was, you know, experiments and research done into nuclear weapons, pretty rudimentary experiments and and research done into nuclear weapons, but um, at the same time, you know, maybe the Iranians wanted you know, potential option, you know, you know, to weaponize this program at that time. But that ended in 2003 with the Iraq war as well, which took out Saddam Hussein, obviously. I think that is a significant part of this. But regardless, you know, Khatani was, his whole presidency was a concession, you know, kind of goodwill overturned to the United States. And, you know, those initial nuclear talks with the E3 from 2003, 2002 to 2005, Iran, you know, really went above and beyond in trying to kind of give assurances, Freezing its nuclear program and trying to normalize its nuclear program, and you know, reach agreements very similar to the JCPOA. It's crazy, actually. And one of the last proposals that came from Iran in 2005, before Ahmadinejad was inaugurated, was something that pretty much looks identical to the JCPOA. You know, all kind of capping enrichment at five percent, not having a plutonium reprocessing facility, all the things. You know, for like various time durations, but then the at the time, the Bush administration rejected that and had this maximalist demand of no enrichment in Iran, and which again, it, it's contrary to the NPT. So, you know, the Bush administration was not serious about having letting negotiations succeed with Iran. And they really had this regime change mentality, as we talked about, these neoconservatives dominating this administration. And they didn't want to, to come to any terms with Iran. They wanted to the regime change Iran. And that's just like what Trump wanted as well.
1: So talk about Ahmadinejad's elected, uh, 2005, um, somewhat in contrast with his, uh, current Twitter persona of peace and love. He was, uh, quite a hardliner on the issue of, uh, relations with the West. Um, uh, what happened to the, these negotiations with Europe, um, over the, the remainder of the, the Bush term, um, the, the last, you know, three and a half or so uh, years of the Bush administration and the early kind of first term uh, of the Obama administration as they were, you know, kind of dealing with Ahmadinejad and, and you know, not, ma- who was not as interested in kind of, um, you know, making these concessions to the West.
2: Yeah, so Ahmadinejad came to power, you know, attacking kind of all time these documents, you know, being an appeaser, being weak, being you know, too conciliatory and giving into these these demands by the U.S. and its allies. And his first moves were to uh, restart enrichment and kind of unfreeze Iran's nuclear program and kind of uh, expand it. So he started making those moves after he came to, to, to office when, when he was inaugurated. And at the time, I forget the specific details, but the IAEA eventually... Uh, in 2006, the IAEA Board of Governors referred Iran to the UN uh, the, uh, Security Council. The UN uh, Security Council, and they issued kind of res- what would become a series of resolutions against Iran, uh, centering Iran for for its nuclear program. And this began eight years of escalation, mutual escalation, where Iran was expanding its nuclear program. The U.S. and its allies were pushing through new sanctions, really severe sanctions, and this culminated to the situation and but there were you know throughout this eight-year period from 2005 when Ahmadinejad became president to 2013 when he left and Rouhani came and the nuclear negotiations I got us the JCPOA started you know there was a lot of escalation but there was actual there was promises for a deal as well like Ahmadinejad for all his bellicose rhetoric um he did seek a deal with the United States he was amenable to kind of he made a lot of overtures to America you know a lot of it a lot of people didn't know about him it had a lot of you know, it was actually circumventing all these other hard kind of centers of power inside Iran. Um, but including one notable potential deal that happened under Ahmadinejad that, again, failed because of American maximalism was in 2009 for the same, that Tehran Research Reactor, the same reactor that America gave to Iran in the 60s, uh, Iran was running out of the fuel needed to operate this reactor and produce the medical isotope. That the fuel that it had gotten from Argentina many years before. And Iran was trying to get uh, fuel for this reactor, and um, they reached a tentative agreement where Iran w- would swap out a lot of the stockpiles of enrichment of orange uranium it had at that point and get the fuel it had from Europe. And um, even like, you know, Turkey and Brazil at the time played a key role in kind of uh, facilitating this agreement. Everything looked like it was finalized, but then. It was actually, sec- at the time, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in Iran. Huh? She, she opposed it. She gave this big speech opposing it, and like a new U.S. sanctions were opposed, imposed then. And, and then that agreement fell apart. And then Iran ended up, at that point, going to enrich the 20% to produce the fuel itself. So this is another pattern we see. It's like American kind of maximalist stances, just like with Trump and his reneging on the JCPOA. The maximalist stances don't work. What it results in is Iran, you know, increasing its nuclear leverage, expanding its nuclear program. If it can't get the fuel by importing it, it provides it develops it itself, which increases the proliferation risk of Iran's nuclear program. So this kind of, you know, this hyper aggressive regime change strategies that the US has had towards Iran have been very self-defeating ultimately at the end. They're based on this kind of wishful thinking about American power that it doesn't translate into the real world. You know, they have not collapsed Iran as a well, country and
0: I would say it's only self-defeating if you don't want humanity to be annihilated in a nuclear war. I think otherwise, then, it's doing pretty good at what it set out to do.
2: That's true. I mean, yeah, I mean, a large part of it is pain for the sake of pain, you know? Like, when you see these economics, these great <laughs> draconian so, economic sanctions,
0: yeah. I really think it's it's a lot of... I, I'm not much of a Freudian, but just the way the United States has addressed Iran, like you said, in contravention of its own distinct interests and the interests of humanity itself, it expresses some sort of libidinal desire to hurt. You know, it's very strange when you look at it from any sort of rationalist perspective. It could only be explained partially. I mean not only I think there's a, there's some something psychological going on that I don't I don't think is always true when we're talking about geopolitics. I don't know if you think that's ridiculous, but it just seems the relationship with Iran is just objectively strange. You know, it's like the Saudi Arabia is such a great friend of the United States that it seems like deeper than just politics. Yeah, it's
2: a bizarre obsession. It's a bizarre op- obsession. There I think there's many factors for it. I think a lot of it is the hubris of American statesmen about kind of uh, statesmen and women about American power, especially like I remember Hillary Clinton, you know, it's like when they asked her about Libya and like, she, yeah, she had that kind of maniacal laugh about like taking out Gaddafi or like, I think during one of the presidential debates in 2016, they asked her like, who's she's most proud of being enemies with? And she's like the Iranians. So there is this bizarre aspect of it that is beyond just like, or just McCain bomb, dispute. bomb,
0: bomb, bomb, bomb Iran. Yeah. McCain you know, bomb, like, bomb, 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 yeah. bomb Iran.
2: Yeah. And so, when in reality, you know, the US and Iran, you know, used to have a good relationship under the Shah, but you know, a kind of patron client relationship. But they both have a large
0: bourgeoisie. You know, yeah. they, there's a, a not so culturally dissimilar in some regards. At least, the, I don't. I don't really know, but my people who study Iran say that, that there's a lot in common uh, yeah. between these two countries culturally in terms of uh, the sort of bourgeois identity and educated populace. You know, it's it's interesting. Maybe there's something about see, the United States sees itself in the mirror in some regards. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, Sina, I want to, uh, uh, we're, we're sort of on the cusp of the JCPOA and we can talk a little bit about its terms and, and what, what it laid out. But before we do that, I'd like you to talk as somebody who, you know, uh, follows Iranian media, kind of, uh, you know, the way that, that these issues are discussed, uh, in Iran. Talk about the sanctions regime as it had been Put together by the Bush administration and then really kind of ratcheted up severely under the Obama administration. Uh, the imposition of these, uh, secondary sanctions, which kind of, uh, assume uh, America's right to tell everybody in the world what to do or to threaten them at least with, uh, punishment if they, they contravene them. Um, and you know, just this sort of mass punishment that they inflicted on the Iranian people and what effect that had. Uh, on Iran and, and in particular, maybe, you know, uh, in terms of, I think, elevating the nuclear issue from a, a question of sort of national utility to one of like national pride and, and a sort of, uh, you know, symbolism of Iran standing up to the United States, which I think, uh, is, is one of the issues that, that, you know, has been most difficult in sort of, uh, you know, trying to, to get past this. Um, but you know, can you talk a little bit about the sanctions and, and, uh,
2: those sorts of effects? Yeah, so the Obama era was actually, it was really the original maximum pressure campaign. Obama's first term was, like we talked about earlier, maximalist demands, you know, still echoing the Bush administration's line of zero enrichment uh, for Iran. Uh, A lot of Obama's personnel in his first term were people who were pretty ideologically opposed to diplomacy with Iran. I would put Hillary Clinton mostly in that camp. Uh, Dennis Ross was the National Security Council at the time. He was definitely in that camp of being opposed to diplomacy in Iran. And so we saw a massive uh, escalation of U.S. pressure, uh, the U.S. kind of strong-arming a lot of other countries to agree to its sanctions. And, you know, also on top of kind of sanctions that, you know, Congress passed and Obama approved, um, also... A U. A, you know, a couple of UN Security Council kind of resolutions, which, you know, the US gave a lot of uh, concessions to China and Russia to kind of come on board with those UN te- UN Security Council resolutions, which is kind of ironic. And it goes to this point of this Iran obsession, where, you know, if there's an argument to be made for like, you know, if China and Russia are America's pure competitors and real geopolitical rivals, and Iran is this middling, fledgling Middle Eastern country, for America to be so obsessed that to, to give you know, the big concessions at the time to get them to support these sanctions on Iran. But, but the Obama administration nevertheless did that, but it, was, it only resulted in Iran counter escalating. And Iran, you know, it went to 20% enriched, enriched uranium. Iran went from like 200 centrifuges enriching uranium to 10,000 by 2013. Iran went from one enrichment facility at Natanz to two with another one at Fordow. And this is, you know, buried under a mountain, you know, impenetrable to bombs. And we were in a situation by 2012, 2013 that, you know, on the cusp of war, where this pressure hadn't worked, Iran's program was very expansive, so-called breakout time, the time Iran needs that you know, if it made the decision to build a bomb, to accumulate enough, like, design material for one bomb, it was down to a couple months by many estimates. And this was really the momentum for the, what led to the negotiations. It's a very untenable situation, like a lot of this U.S. pressure ultimately not paying off. And what really... What really triggered the shift was actually before even Rouhani, the more conciliatory, pragmatic Iranian president, came to office, before him, still under Ahmadinejad, in 2013, in the spring of 2013, there were secret talks, back channel talks between the US and Iran, and Oman. And at the time, Bill Burns, you know, former State Department official, current CIA director, was the chief, you know, US. He led those talks on behalf of the US and he conveyed to Iran. That America is prepared to accept uranium enrichment in Iran, and this was the first time that America said that, and that laid the groundwork for each side kind of cashing in these bargaining chips. And this leads me to another point about actually Iran's nuclear program, where you know people like Mohammed El Baradai, and many people have said Iran's nuclear program is also the, a bargaining chip. They've envisioned it as a bargaining chip to get the U.S. and. The, great powers to recognize them and recognize the Islamic Republic and to, you know, lift sanctions and kind of uh engage engage this policy. And and that's what, you know, ultimately the JCPOA, on top of the kind of economic benefits it was supposed to give to Iran, it kind of took Iran out from all these UN Security Council resolutions. It and for the first time it the US you know sat down with the Iranian diplomats and you know gave tacit recognition of the Islamic Republic. And Iran also got a security guarantee, really, you know, a security guarantee that, you know, maybe a, some in Iran would have thought maybe a bomb would have kept them. But the JCPOA, if it was in effect, you know, with the inspectors on the ground, if the UN Security Council resolution endorsing it also, you know, would prevent uh, U.S. attack on Iran. So I think the JCPOA filled many things for Iran.
1: I think what we'll do is we'll end here in a, in a moment and sort of pick up with the talks that led to the JCPOA and the JCPOA itself and then Trump and, and that stuff. Maybe we'll come back and do that in a couple of weeks. Uh, but I wanted to ask you as we, we're closing here, um, uh, the election of Rouhani in 2013, Hassan Rouhani, uh, much more moderate. At least, you know, on on paper, than than Ahmadinejad, much more open to uh, to engagement with the West. Uh, it, it there's a dynamic that that's happened here now over the last four now Iranian presidential administrations or Iranian presidents, I should say, uh, where you have the election of somebody who is you know relatively moderate, relatively open to engagement with the West. They're in office for eight years and. Their engagement with the West achieves nothing because the West in the United States in particular re- doesn't allow it to achieve anything. Uh, at which point you have the backlash. You have the the hardliner who comes in with, you know, very anti U.S., anti Western, uh, kind of rhetoric who gets uh, elected in, in sort of response to the, uh, the fact that, you know, you, you came up empty handed. Um, what do you think that says about the the political desires of the Iranian people as they vote, you know, vote for these guys who who want engagement, um, and and about the United States' unwillingness to sort of take the hand that's being offered to them and instead kind of uh, push things to the point where they they generate a, a
2: backlash? Yeah, great question. I think, you know, we talk about countries having kind of a rally around the flag effect. You know, we talked about it in America after 9-11. People put aside, the, you know, many people, most people put aside a lot of partisan differences. You know, everyone put an American flag at the door, whatever. You know, kind of this rally around the flag effect in the face of a kind of outside threat. And Iran is, you know, similar to many other countries like that, that we saw, you know, Iranians, many, many Iranians, millions of people, you know, people are dis- disgruntled with the Islamic Republic, vehement. Many people want fundamental change in the system. Um they've been, you know, subjects you know, subject to so much repression, you know, from a very insular theocratic you know, system. Many you know, we talked about, you know, many people in Iran's middle class want to better relate, you know, better relations with the world. They aspire to kind of be more connected and with the outside world, be more economically prosperous. And the JCPOA, rep- you know embodied that hope in the, in the many of the people who voted for Rouhani. Um and Rouhani, you know, he was elected promising these changes, you know, he had these quotes in the, the 2013 election saying, you know, it's not okay if like centrifuges only spin, you know, the people's economic livelihoods must must also spin. So he was elected on this promise, you know, very, you know, high turnout, very, a lot of public enthusiasm from him, from the middle classes. And, but then, you know, he left term, he left his term in office last, last uh, year with, you know very earlier this year, very unpopular, one of the most unpopular politicians in, in Iran. Uh, his foreign minister became one of the most unpopular. You know, you know, Zarif, who was once extremely popular in Iran, was now, you know, his, his popular ratings have also dropped. And this is, you know, I would say largely as a result of U.S. pressure and maximum pressure. You know, obviously the conservative and those, the partisan rivals of the moderates in Iran were going to do whatever they can to maximize their hand. But Trump, you know, gave it to them. You know, he he undid Rouhani's signature foreign policy achievement, the JCPOA, and, you know, he assassinated Hassan Soleimani. And Hassan Soleimani, you know, the Iranian general who was assassinated by the U.S. in a drone strike in the Baghdad International Airport in January 2020, he was, you know, amongst the Iranian population in Iran, very revered. You know, people in Iran viewed him as kind of this commander who was protecting the country, who was he fought in the Iran-Iraq war. He was leading Iran's on the ground war against ISIS. You know, they credit him with defeating ISIS. And the US so you know, for the Iranian people, you know, in such a blatant and kind of coward, in a very cowardly way, just assassinate him like this. That resulted in outpouring. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw, but you know, despite all the you know, anger that so many people, millions of people in Iran have against the Islamic Republic, this is what Trump brought out. Trump brought out the sense of Iranian nationalism, the sense that, you know. It's not about the Islamic Republic. It's about, you know, Iran and the territorial integrity of Iran, you know, Trump and Bolton and, and Netanyahu are trying to destroy Iran. So you saw for, you know, Soleimani's funeral, you know, tens of millions of people, you know, across Iranian cities come out for these various funeral processions. And that is, that is a rally around the flag effect. That is, you know, Iranian people, despite, you know, wanting, you know, fundamental change in their country, seeing that, you know, in the. Trump wants, what John Bolton wants, what Netanyahu wants, what Mohammed bin Salman wanted. this consolation of actors aligned against them in the Trump era, that this is not, nothing good for them. It's not going to get them a democratic Iran. It's not going to get them a prosperous Iran, Iran. It's going to get them a destroyed, you know, destroying their country. And I think that is why also, you know, Trump's policies were not successful, because they hoped that, you know, trigger unrest and turmoil in Iran, but it it, it did not they were not
1: able to do that. All right. So on that note, I think let's end here. And then uh, if you're able, we'll come back in a couple of weeks, maybe, and and talk about the the negotiations and the JCPOA and some of the political um, machinations around that and and what's happened uh, since 2015. Um, So, uh, Sina Tusi, again, thank you so much. Uh, Senior Research Analyst at the National Iranian American Council. Check them out. Uh, And, uh, yeah, thanks, thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: Thanks, guys. Great discussion.